Welcome to another episode of Let Fear Bounce, folks. Listen in as I chat with an award-winning author who also happens to have over 30 years experience in the criminal justice system, Pamela Haynes, coming to us from the UK. So grab that coffee, sit back, relax, and listen into the show. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let Fear Bounce. This is Kim Langling, your host. And I am so happy that you're deciding to spend just a small portion of your day with myself and my special guest today, Pamela Haynes. She is an award-winning author. Pamela has over 30 years experience working in the criminal justice system and has worked in a variety of probation officer roles and settings, namely as a court probation officer, caseworker, and as a domestic abuse program facilitator. She aspires to write training programs for criminal justice agencies home and abroad, working alongside like-minded colleagues to develop a Caribbean response to managing domestic violence in the region, thereby safeguarding survivors of domestic violence and their families. Pam's debut novel, Loving the Brothers, was published on January 8th of 2018, and she had her book launches in London, Dublin, and Barbados. Pamela, welcome to Let Fear Bounce. So exciting because you and I do a lot of the same things, although I'm not in the criminal justice system, but we do a lot of the same things. So it's wonderful to meet another like-minded woman with a passion in her heart to get the stories and the words out there. So welcome to Let Fear Bounce. Okay. Hi, Kim. Um, Thank you very much for having me. I have been looking forward to this because your background is very interesting to me. And I know that uh, domestic violence is is a big problem worldwide, and we want to bring a light to that. And I'm so glad that you're doing so. And I love that you have your podcast that you speak with authors. Uh, I have a television show that's called The Right Stuff that is nothing but authors sharing their, their writing journey. So that's kind of fun to see that there's another one out there that's doing the same thing and enjoying it and getting the author's journeys out there. So again, welcome to Let Fear Bounce. I want to hop in right away. You've got over 30 years experience working in the criminal justice system. What made you go that direction? Um, I'm a child of, well, I grew up in the 1970s. I left school in the 1980s. Um, At that time, Margaret Thatcher, the first British um, woman prime minister, Um, was in power and I really thought that I would end up on a youth training scheme. Unemployment was at its highest with over four million people out of work. So I left school and I went to the job centre locally to me and I couldn't see anything that matched the qualifications that I had. And um, just as we were leaving, my sister pointed to a tiny little card in the job centre that was looking for staff for a new government organization. And she said to me, you've you've got the qualifications, you've got the O-levels to do it. So I applied. So it was a civil service um, job with Her Majesty's Crown Prosecution Service, a brand new organization. Prior to that, the police used to prosecute their own cases. And I suppose they brought in this new organization to be impartial. You know, they could then look at um, whether the case was in the public interest and um, whether there was enough evidence. So I started as um, an administrative officer with the CPS. I got the job. It was local to me, um, a bus ride away. 
I was fascinated by the whole process of investigation, arrest, evidence. Um, I got to go to most of the magistrates' courts in northeast London to represent the Crown. So I don't know if you've seen British law programmes, but they wear the wigs and the gowns and everything else. That wasn't me. I was the person <laughs> sitting behind them taking <laughs> notes and um, preparing briefs for counsel, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. That was my entry into the criminal justice system. Five years later, I felt as though I was part of the problem, not part of the solution, um, because we saw the same young people going around the criminal justice system, what we call the revolving door. So they would come into court, get sentenced, and then six months later, we'd see them again. And I became increasingly frustrated by seeing all of that. But um, there was a probation officer at court, and there was something about the reports that was coming in. We, had, we as the prosecution, never had sight of them. But it was something that was influential about it, which meant that not everybody went to prison. People were offered alternatives to custody and the judges would take those options. And I was fascinated to know what was in those reports. And um, I ended up leaving the CPS and joining the probation service. And that's where the bulk of my career, my experiences come from. But that, that's the makeup really of the 30 years that um, I spent in the criminal justice system. That's fascinating. And also it's fascinating to me simply because, you know, you're, you're in a different country and things are done slightly different. Like you had mentioned, you know, the court system, they still wear the wigs and, and all of that, which I know a lot of Americans find Americans find fascinating. And I have to raise my hand and say, I am one of them, <laughs> but what an amazing journey you've had. And for so many years, I can't imagine, you know, you said after five years, you wanted to change course a little bit because you felt like you were becoming a part of the problem. Explain that just a little bit more. Well, when you work for the CPS, there is no um, therapeutic side of it. There's no, you know, you're not supporting people to make changes. You're not really influential in any way in terms of some of the laws that come out. You have no input in shaping what those laws might look like. Um, so, for example, joint enterprise was one that came out. So if you happen to be with somebody who then committed an offence, by virtue of you being with them, meant that you were also tried and found guilty as well. And I didn't particularly agree with that because um, there were many examples of where there was miscarriages of justice, where young people were sent to prison who were really not involved in gangs, but because they were happy to be present at a particular scene, were prosecuted as well, even though they didn't carry out an offence. So there were politics that were happened around that particular organisation that I felt was um, unfair, um, especially to young people, which influenced me to, you know, actually let's go into a more of a therapeutic session where we're able to help young people in the way that we the way that we do. I love that. And, and it's, it's so refreshing to hear that there are people out there and I know that there are, we all know that there are, but sometimes you just don't hear about them enough that you actually wanted to make a difference and not just go in and do your time for the day, but you were actually seeing the problems and wanted to be part of the solution and the therapeutic part of it, especially with the young people, they're just beginning their lives you know, and they need it, they need a good chance. And if they're, they're able to get that chance, I'm glad that there are folks out there like you that are 
watching out for them. I think we need more. We need more people like that. So first off, thank you for doing what you have done for the last 30 years. Yeah, thank you very much. I cannot actually believe that the 30 years have flown by so quickly. And um, what I liked about being in the probation service is that I didn't stay in just one department and I didn't just stay with casework. I, you know, I then ended up um, working in the programs department. So I delivered the domestic abuse program along with my colleagues, um, which is 18 months long. So, you know, we acknowledge that change doesn't happen overnight. And not only that, people need time to learn new skills and they need time to learn how to communicate those um, skills as well. So I thoroughly enjoyed that post. And then I went on to train probation officers, students who were coming through from our universities, I was involved in their training. And then towards the end of my career, I moved into management. So I was managing teams of people who, you know, who wanted to then go on and help um, service users. I found it thoroughly enjoyable and rewarding. Now in your bio, you mentioned about wanting to be able to train and or write a book for probation officers and things like that. G give me a little more detail on that because that sounds fascinating. Um, what I wanted to do was put probation at the heart of my stories. Um, as you know, there are books about fire, the fire service. There's books about the hospitals, um, hospitals and staff. I'm thinking of Grey's Anatomy. There's a book, there's books about the, um, the law. You know, I'm a huge Shonda Rhimes um, fan as well. So I was inspired by those kind of books that talked about what different professions do. LA Law is another one. Um, but there aren't any books that put the probation service at the heart of the story. So um, we save lives too. We just can't talk about it. Um, because of issues around confidentiality. We do things around child protection and safeguarding that we can't sing from the rooftops about. People only know about what probation do when it goes horribly wrong. And I wanted to write a story that puts probation staff at the center of it. So hence, I wrote my book, um, Loving the Brothers. Now share about the book. Now it was released January of 2018. So share a little bit about that book and your journey as you were going through it and writing it. Well, yes, it's always been on my bucket list. I'm an avid reader and I've always wanted to write a book. Um, in 2016, I was fast approaching a milestone birthday. I had a look at my bucket list. I had go on a cruise, write a book and do my master's. I had this dream of walking across the stage and graduating on my 50th birthday, but I found I didn't really have the headspace to take on anything academic. I've already done all of that. And furthermore, what would another qualification, what doors would it open for me other than just having the self-gratification of having done something and achieved something? So I quickly dismissed that. I wanted to write a book. I went to an award ceremony Everybody on my table was picking up an award except for me. Some phenomenal women on the table. I was my friend's plus one. And I happened to sit next to a woman who had written her book called Geraldine's Pearl. And she had stacks of her book next to her. And um, I said to her, like I always do when I buy people's books and I meet the author, one day I'm going to write a book. And she said, keep in touch with me. Uh, moving into publishing, 
and I would love to publish a book. Long story short, two years later, eight weeks before my 50th birthday, I wrote Loving the Brothers. She kept me to task all the way through the process. Um, when I was having second thoughts and doubting myself and worried about how my story would be received, she encouraged me to birth the book. Hence, I gave her the nickname Marcia, the midwife, Spence, and it stuck. She still uses that in her branding now. She took me the right the way through the process. She freed me from worrying about editing and spelling, grammar, punctuation, all of that. She freed me from it and just said, write the story. We'll take care of everything else. And that really made me, you know, go for it and complete the book. So, yeah, the book's here now. I'm loving everything about it. I did try to go down a traditional route with the book to see if I could get a, a publishing deal, but they didn't like the cover of the book. They didn't like the um, name, Loving the Brothers, and they wanted me to change my protagonists as well, make them more multiracial, and I, I wasn't willing to do that. They were three of my non-negotiables, so I stayed with Marcia, and my book was published on the 8th of January, 2018. I know, Mar um, I know Marcia. You know Marcia? Oh, well, yes, I'm connected with her for the last couple of years. Yeah, we've collaborated on a couple of things. So, and, you know, going like you mentioned, going the traditional route, it's many people want to do that. I myself have tried it. I just, it, my book, for whatever reason, haven't made the cut. And that's fine. And I think that the majority of folks, it's rejection after rejection. And it might be years down the road when you finally get that yes. And self-publishing. And going through folks like Marcia with her publishing house, the smaller publishing houses, is the way that so many authors, actually, I would say 90% of the authors that I know go that way and become very successful with it. I've had my, you know, success as well. It's been like a whirlwind, really, because um, after the book was published, I went on the cruise, like I wanted to go on the cruise. I went on a Caribbean cruise. I came back and was overwhelmed by the amount of people who were supporting me, contacting me, some um, who were also survivors of domestic abuse, who wanted to talk about um, their stories. So they'll start with the book first, you know, what they liked, what they didn't like, which character they're rooting for. And then they would break into their own stories of domestic abuse as well. So my why changed from wanting to achieve this for a milestone birthday to now then having to support people in getting help um, for their own personal situations. Quite a few colleagues came forward as well to say, you know, I don't know if you remember Pam, but back in 19, whatever it is when I was working with you, I was going through a similar experience to one of your characters. So thank you for doing what you're doing. So the um, the book has got a life of its own and taken off and opened up lovely doors for me to travel to Barbados to have a book launch there, um, to Dublin in Ireland to have a book launch there and up and down the United Kingdom with the book as well. Radio interviews, I've been on television a few times as well. And those experiences, and I'm just so fascinating to be part of, um, to have those kind of experiences under my belt as a result of becoming an author. And it's an amazing journey, you know, and everybody's journey is different. And that first, that first time when you've, you've finished your book and you're sending it off for editing or someone to, to read or beta read or critique, 
it feels like you're you're sending a big piece of yourself a big piece of your heart is going out out you know and i know with me i my stomach just kind of tightens up and goes oh okay all right i'm sending it out here it goes <laughs> you know did you have that feeling that kind of nervous you know jittery yeah, because, feeling you know will people get me will they laugh in the places they're supposed to laugh and will they cry in the places that they're supposed to cry? Remember, I've written court reports for magistrates and judges and so on. So I've always done some form of storytelling. But that was the offender's story. That was the prisoner's story. That was the defendant's story. This time around, these are my stories. These are, you know, fiction, although it's based on the cycle of abuse. But this, and the, the story is essentially fictional. Will people get it? Will they understand it? So there is that little element of trepidation where you really don't know how your book is going to be received amongst your family members, um, and in your community, and, and, and in general. But um, fortunately, so far, the experience and the, the feedback that I've received from people have been phenomenal. It actually spurred me on to um, write the sequel to, my, to Love in the Brothers, which is called Love in the Sisters. That's been really, really good. And Loving the Sisters went off to um, a new publisher um, not that long ago. I am actually writing Loving the Children at the moment. So it will be a trilogy of, of three books. I love that. And I was just that you answered my next question. I was going to say, is there a sequel to this? Because it sounds like this could be more than one book. And you answered my question. So you've got Loving the Brothers. Loving the Sisters is in the works right now to be published? Well, yeah, we're hoping that it will be done by July, 2022. Um, we're finalizing the manuscript at the moment. So you know what it's like, you send it to an editor, they come back with loads of comments and I'm wading through, I'm about halfway through reading the new book and refining things as well, because there's new bits that, you know, I want to to include as well alongside writing loving the children which is what i'm doing at the moment and this particular publisher has given me the opportunity to rewrite the original book um loving the brothers so i set up a group of three other women to help me review loving the brothers and they gave me instant feedback in real time as i was writing the book and a book that took me two years to originally write ended up taking me four weeks to actually review. So that's gone into the publisher as well. And I think that I'm calling it Loving the Brothers 2.0 is actually better because I've grown in that uh, period of time as a writer in the last four years. And um, I do believe that the second edition, when that comes out, I've had people who told, have told me already that they're gonna buy the, the new book as well. So that's always that's always helpful. That is so exciting. That is really exciting. And you could even sell when they're all three done, you can sell them as a box set. That's the, that's the idea. So <laughs> yeah. um, I'm saying to my new publishers, you know, I want the dimensions to be the same. I want a similar layout on the front copy of the, the book so that eventually I can do maybe a gold edition. Have you seen those books where down the pages, there's a nice gold foil and, you know, the yes. scope to do many different things with it. So that's the idea. How exciting and what a, what an amazing journey and the message that you have in all three books that will be put out into the world is needed. And I, more of a light needs to be shined upon 
you know, domestic violence and the ramifications of it and how it affects. I love that you're doing one for children or you're regarding children because that's that affects their lives in so many ways that people don't even realize and that children carry so much with them without realizing it because that's their norm. That's their world at the time. I was going to say, say precisely that really, that I believe that domestic abuse affects the unborn child. It affects their development. They're more likely to be born prematurely. Um, when they are here, they, they reach their milestones a lot later than their peers. They suffer from anxiety in terms of um, going to school, leaving the parent at home in an abusive environment all the way through from the growing fetus, all the way through until they're adults at 18 years old. You research bears this out as well. Less likely to attain at school, more likely to take part in alcohol and drugs, um, school truancy, the whole way, the whole work. So it's, an in, it's integral that we are raising awareness of domestic abuse. You know, we have some horrific cases here in the UK where women uh, have been murdered in the last trimester of their pregnancy. And every time I hear it, it just reminds me of how important it is to get the message out to women who are in that situation that they need help. I 100% agree. And that we, we have the same issues here in the United States. And it's, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, you know, when you when you read something or you hear something on the radio, or you, you know, see something on the television, because you just think, you know, this could have been avoided. This doesn't need to happen. And again, back to the children, you were mentioning some, you know, truancy or, you know, may, might become addicted to, you know, alcohol or drugs or things like that. The emotional side of it is so heavy for young people because they don't know how to process it. Or like I said earlier, it's like, it's their normal. So they're not aware that there might be something different. You know, if they grow up with low self-esteem, no self-worth, insecurity issues, depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts may come into play down the road because they feel that, you know, they're told that they're worthless or treated like they're worthless. So they believe it. We've got to change that, you know, and you're one person that's doing it and you're getting the word out there. And I can't wait for all, th all three of these books to be done. And I will help, I will help in what way I can to shout from the rooftops with you on these books because it's it's just a message that needs desperately needs put out there. So thank you. I'm just gonna keep saying thank you. Thank you for doing this and having the heart and doing what you're doing and getting the word out in, in these books. And it that takes a lot out on you too, I'm sure. So what type of, I know when I write certain things, when I'm done writing it, it takes, it has taken a bit of an emotional toll on myself because I put so much of myself into what I do at times. Does that, do you find that being the same for you? I'm not always, but um, again, it depends what I'm writing about. And there was one scene which uh, I believe was quite heavy. I did get upset afterwards. And I think it's really good to have a relationship with your um, publisher where you're able to talk through what those issues are. But I've had colleagues who have worked alongside psychologists and psych um, psychiatric services, counsellors and so on when they're choosing to write their memoir because they are revisiting their trauma. 
So one of my peers um, has written a, a beautiful book called Prisoners to the Streets. Uh, but he always says, Pam, every time I talk about my story, I get upset all over again. And we were talking about perhaps he needs a further referral to have some counselling around the book. One thing that Marcia did do is that she did take on a psychologist who contacts all of their or her authors at least once just to check through that they're that they're okay. And I really appreciated that call from Grace when it came through. Not that I had anything to discuss with her, but the fact that she was there so that if the book, you know, something came up in the book that I needed to discuss it with somebody outside, she was going to be there. And I thought that well, that was a really good touch to have that provision that Marcy had thought about. Well, actually, some people, especially if they're writing their own memoirs, may need that kind of facility. And yeah, and that's awesome. And I, I recall when she started that and I just thought, what an amazing idea. And because when authors are, and myself included, a lot of I've noticed a lot of creative people, actually the majority of creative people, especially authors, have experienced some sort of trauma in their own lives. And that spurs what they're writing about, or it certainly has an impact on what they're writing about and even the words that they use. And maybe subconsciously they don't realize the toll that it's taking on them until it's done or they're experiencing symptoms. And then they wonder, you know, why they're why they're so edgy or so depressed. So I think that's what an awesome idea. Wouldn't it be nice if all publishers did that? <laughs> um, but what we can do in the absence of not um, having those kind of facilities is to go to our peers. You know, I've always written alongside other people. So I've had reviewers who have come back and cried as a result of reading um, Loving the Brothers 2.0. They have come back and said that they really felt for one of the characters. You know, we can discuss, well, potentially someone comes to me to talk about that particular part of the book, what my response might be in terms of including it in the book, because some people have said, well, it's too far-fetched. You know, there's no way that a man would do a particular thing to a woman. And actually, you know, I've got all my facts and figures here of where it does happen. Yep. So, yeah, it's, it's good to be able to write that alongside other people that you trust and that they can give you feedback in real time about, about your writing as well. I'm very much a part of my writing group. I'm also on Clubhouse in another writing group there as well. We give each other feedback on our, you know, on our work. And I think that that's crucial going forward that you can find your community who can support you writing your writing your work. Absolutely. I completely agree. I was because I was going to mention community, you know, authors. It's kind of it's a solitary type of thing being an author. And sometimes you fall too deep into your own self and your own head and your stories. And when you come up for for a breath of air and look around, you're like, oh, maybe I need to be around humans. <laughs> you know, Maybe I need to set this aside and be more around humans. So it's it's I think it's vital to have you know, community, uh, support group, peers, colleagues, what have you, that you can talk to about what you're doing or, you know, brainstorm, toss ideas back and forth and have someone outside your own bubble read your stuff and give you an unbiased opinion on it. And for me anyway, that helps to clarify things a lot of times for me. Do you find that? Yes, I'm looking, investigating spiritual abuse um, in the new book. So 
um, this is uh, one of my characters. Rose is the pastor's wife. She is experiencing spiritual abuse where her husband is jealous of the talents that she has. Every time she opens her mouth to sing, she blesses everybody. Every time she speaks in church, just about everything about her church life that she does, her husband hates it. And, um, you know, violence happens as a result, is quite spiteful, is quite mean towards her. There's um, locks on the food, on the cupboard doors. You know, she, so he restricts her access to food, uh, you know, numerous things that happen. And what's really good is that I could then bring my friend in America who is a pastor and run that by her, it, you know, is there is there such a thing as spiritual abuse? And she was like, yeah, you're right. And, and you need to write about it. That she knows real people who have experienced that kind of thing and had to exit their marriages as a result. So I, I think it's crucial when you're writing these stories that you keep them as real as possible. But you have people who you can check in with and say, you know, I'm thinking about writing X, Y, and Z. You know, what's your perspective on it? Does, does this happen? and um, get that feedback and apparently my sermons that I write in the book as well quite good that um, my friend wants to take and use them as well so yeah it's I, I find it a two-way street and I love I love talking about my books and what I'm writing well and I love hearing about them <laughs> this is this has been amazing and time has flown we have reached right. the end of our time already and I can't believe how quickly it went because I have other questions to ask you. So that just means I'll have to have you on again sometime. Thank you so much, Pamela, for being my guest on Let Fear Bounce. This has been amazing. I can't wait to have you on again and to see your second book come out. That's so exciting. So congratulations on that. And to turn it into a three book series is amazing in itself. So congratulations on all that you're doing. And thanks, thanks, thanks for being my guest on Let Fear Bounce. Thanks for having me. Everybody, thank you for joining in another episode of Let Fear Bounce. I'm so glad you spent a part of your day with myself and my wonderful guest, Pamela, coming to us from the UK. Everybody out there, be well, stay well, and be blessed. Until next time, take care, everybody. <laughs>